0: Last week, we made a thousand bucks. This week, we're going to make a billion. But first, I've got to tell you a story. Let's set the scene. It's 2011, I'm raising funding for the mobile dating app I was building at the time, Find Your Lobster. It looks a lot like Hinge and Tinder, but was about a year before either, and as my dad likes to remind me, that fact along with $2.50 will get you on the subway. So anyway. I'm trying to get angel investors, basically rich people who invest for fun, to write $50,000 or $100,000 checks so that I could build out my Facebook-driven dating app that everyone was so skeptical about. You never know what you're going to get with an angel investor. Lots of them are professional and extremely knowledgeable. A ton of them have started and sold businesses themselves. Others are not. The one qualification for an angel investor is having enough money to be an angel investor, so it's a mixed bag. I'd landed this particular meeting through a friend of a friend of a friend. I was told this angel wrote $100,000 checks like most people tossed a few crumpled $1 bills to the coat check guy at a fancy restaurant. I was also told to wear a suit. It was going to be that type of a meeting. The pitch was at the angel's house. They lived in a beautiful brownstone on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I'd already thoroughly embarrassed myself by asking in the email what their apartment number was before being told that there was no apartment numbers because they owned the whole building. I knocked on the door and someone answered and guided me to a sitting area about as big as my current apartment. About 45 minutes past our scheduled meeting time, I was brought upstairs. The angel investor was sitting at a big wooden desk and the air in the place felt heavy. It was like 10 a.m., but he was still chewing on something that I later realized was a cigar butt. He reminded me of a cartoon character. As I walked across the room towards a seat in the front of his desk, he boomed out, stop. I stopped frantically wondering what I'd done wrong. He leaned back in his chair and said, if you've come to make me a rich man, you're too late. He then laughed and wheezed for a good 15 seconds, which is a really long time in person, and then told me to proceed with the pitch. The meeting went about as well as you would expect with him telling me that no, quote, broads would ever use a dating app and wondering what happened to the days when you could just ask someone out in person. I left thinking what you're probably thinking now. Well, that guy was an asshole. And maybe he was. But he taught me something very important that's going to help us make a billion dollars today so we can't be too mad at him. I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you're working on a startup idea and you want to do it right, head to gettacklebox.com. We've got a cohort starting January 13th you can apply for and a self-serve product that'll let you do things at your own speed. Back to it. If you've listened to more than an episode or two of the podcast, you know how hard it was for me to write today's title. You know that I think the amount of attention we give to billion dollar companies and people trying to build billion dollar companies is not only preposterous, but harmful. You've heard me chirp about the data. 99% of companies don't ever raise venture capital and of the 1% that do, 99% of those don't build billion-dollar businesses. Most great businesses are not big businesses, and I think people should realize that and focus on it. According to Las Vegas, the New York Knicks are statistically more likely to make the playoffs this year than you are to build a billion-dollar business. That's all you need to know. But it's the holidays. Let's have some fun. Let's shake it up a bit. Let's all grab an eggnog and do a thought experiment about how we could build a billion-dollar business so we can all go live on private islands someday. And then we'll forget all about it. We'll pretend it never happened. If nothing else, it'll be a chance to change how we approach problems. To help with this experiment, I emailed a buddy of mine whose sole job is to figure out super early stage companies that could potentially become billion-dollar businesses. He runs a startup studio that's backed by a massive company that needs to own a big chunk of billion-dollar companies to move the needle for them. If he helps to build even a $300 million company, it won't move the needle. They need crazy scale. I told him I was going to pick an idea today on the pod and flesh it out a bit, see if we could turn it into a billion-dollar business. We bounced ideas back and forth, but more just came up with a framework for what that core idea needs to look like. We landed on four pillars for the billion-dollar idea. First, you need to be right about something that everyone else is wrong about. This is true for most businesses, but for a billion-dollar business, it really needs to be true. Airbnb just went public. They were able to get the type of head start dominating a huge market because even as they were getting traction, competitors didn't believe what they were seeing. They rationalized it for years. Sure, a few weirdos will stay in strangers' homes, but us at the Hyatt Regency are totally fine. Two, you need to be built to scale. Again, this isn't brain surgery and is true for most startups, but this doesn't just mean tech. That's obviously table stakes. It means you need to have a marketplace component and a social network component. This is the way that a regular person can build a billion-dollar business. Assuming you're not Elon Musk, you're going to need the virality and network effects of a social network and the cost dynamics of a marketplace to grow that big. These are the inputs for putting in a dollar on one end and getting $1,000 out on the other end. I don't care how many Bombas socks you bought for people this Christmas. If you want to build a billion dollar business, you can't handicap yourself with the type of overhead those companies have and the types of fixed costs a physical product creates. 3. You've got to be electricity for whatever industry you're in. Facebook is electricity for anyone selling to consumers. You've got to have ads on Facebook or Instagram and you've likely got them set on auto renew. If you're gonna build a billion dollar business, you need to be the same way. Your customers need to think of you as indispensable and you'll likely need a reliable subscription charge coming through as well. Four, you need a serious edge of the wedge strategy. You can't just build the big vision of the thing. Just ask Quibi, whose founders are sitting at home on their asses after having burnt through $1.8 billion in six months with legitimately nothing to show for it. You need a white-hot initial use case that catalyzes growth vertically with your chosen customer and horizontally to adjacent customers. Once we got these four criteria down, I emailed 10 really smart friends of mine and asked them if they had any billion-dollar business ideas. I didn't have any myself, but I sent them the criteria. I got a bunch of fun ideas back and a few that I thought we could maybe work with. The top three were one, a social network for cooking. It meets our criteria. The social network side would be sharing recipes, posting dishes, commenting, that sort of thing. That would function a lot like how Instagram does now, but the posts would be more structured, something similar to Strava, the social network for cyclists and now all athletes. Each meal would be an activity. Advertisers would be natural. Cookware, CSAs, local restaurants. The second one, a network for golfers. Posts would be the rounds. The recipes would be practice techniques, etc. Advertisers would be Titleist, golf instructors, country clubs, Nike. Again, this is very Strava-y, which is a great comp for this exercise because Strava was just valued at our magic number, a billion dollars. And finally, the winner, because it came up like four different times out of 10 emails. Goodreads, but not Goodreads. Goodreads is the social network for books that Amazon owns. Different quotes I heard about Goodreads from the emails are that it's, quote, trash, horrible, unusable, and a massive missed opportunity that's too small for Amazon to care about, but a huge chance for anyone else. Fair enough. Sounds like we got a winner. So for the rest of the podcast, we're going to build a billion-dollar business that'll maybe look something like a social network for books as I say that aloud, yikes, might want to grab another eggnog. Let's see how this goes. Remember that angel investor from the beginning of the podcast? Keep remembering him. We're not there yet. First, we've got to start with Thomas Watson, Sr., the founder of IBM. I gave the full quote from him maybe a week or two ago where he talked about how he was able to visualize how IBM would operate 10 years down the road during the earliest days of the company. He then optimized what he did now to build towards what he would become then. So let's try that. What would our version of Goodreads look like as a billion-dollar company? I called up yet another friend of mine who's been in the social network world for a bit, and we talked through this question, and his suggestion was to work backwards. We decided our version of Goodreads, which for the rest of the pod we're going to call Bookworm, would need to be a three-sided network to really hum down the road and become massive. We need to be electricity for book readers, book publishers, and advertisers. But obviously we can't start serving all three, so what do we do? As my friend said, we work backwards. We start cutting people out. Our first cut was obvious. It was the advertisers. They just complicate things. You wanna create something that's so engaging to the people you're actually creating value for that advertisers are knocking down your door. Ideally, you charge money to the other sides and never even need advertisers. That's good advice for anyone looking to monetize through ads someday. It should not be your core business model. That leaves us with book publishers and book readers. It's still too much, and it's an opportunity to learn from my very favorite startup, Quibi. Quibi went to content creators first. They ignored content consumers. We're not gonna make that mistake. Our next cut is book publishers. Like advertisers, once we've got readers engaged, publishers are gonna beat down our door to be on the platform. So now we're left with book readers. We've gotta create an experience that becomes like electricity for them, a natural extension and enhancer of their reading. And to do that, we've gotta get back to the cigar guy. Cigar Guy was definitely being a jackass when he told me that if I was looking to make him rich, I was too late. But he was also indirectly telling me exactly how to raise money from him. He didn't care about returns. Obviously, he didn't want me to lose his money, but making money wasn't the goal. If I'd been smarter back then, I would have realized it was my job to figure out what his goal was. What was he hiring my startup to do for him? A few years later, I met him at an investor breakfast thing. He was way less intimidating when he wasn't sitting behind a giant desk. Turns out he's just a plump dude with a bad goatee. And I walked over to say hello. He immediately told me about three investments he'd made where he was indispensable. Because of his connections from Yale, where he told me he went no less than seven times during a two-minute conversation and a few other clubs he belonged to, he was able to make intros that helped these startups navigate tough waters. Without him, they'd have been screwed. This guy didn't care about money. He just wanted to feel useful. He'd spent his life thinking that making all these connections was the most valuable thing he could be doing, and he needed to reaffirm that to himself. His choices had been right, and he needed other people to know that too. He was a classic cocktail party investor. He needed an anecdote out of each investment. That's what he was hiring them for. Back to Bookworm. What I'd love to do is get the readers in the situation I got Cigar Guy in that morning. In their natural habitat showing with action what's actually important to them. Unfortunately, I decided to do this extra holiday podcast Monday morning. It's being recorded on Tuesday. There's just no time for customer interviews, so I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to search on the internet. I want to see how people interact with books now, and I want to see what they think of Goodreads. A few Goodreads Google searches left me with a very clear reaction. People hate Goodreads with the fire of a thousand suns. The reviews are scathing. There are endless thought pieces ripping the product to shreds. I combed through to try and make sense of what people hated the most. Things like the app being outdated or certain features being added or discontinued popped up, but there was one core point that was absolutely visceral. Goodreads stunk as a recommendation engine, and people took that personally. This type of quote came up over and over. The recommendations suck, and their best-of lists suck. It's like 100 lists telling me to read The Handmaid's Tale and Harry Potter. I dug a bit deeper. I read up on the origin of Goodreads way back in 2007. It was started by a husband and wife team because they, wait for it, wanted book recommendations from their friends. Despite the pair not being technical or entrepreneurs, the thing grew like wildfire until Amazon bought it in 2013 when it was basically just a book recommendation platform. One last piece of data for you. I searched Google Trends, Twitter Trends, and Facebook Trends, and guess what the most created and most consumed types of content around books are? Lists of Recommendations Bill Gates' 5 books to read every year is one of the most consumed pieces of media out there. So there's our edge of the wedge. People are hiring Goodreads to give them book recs, which they care a lot about, and are pissed off because Goodreads doesn't know them well enough to give them something they'd like. Things are always about personal connection. Subconsciously, people are mad they spent time with Goodreads and that Goodreads doesn't know them. It hurts their feelings. Don't overlook that. It's like the cigar guy. He told me money didn't matter because he wanted to let me in. He wanted me to know him well enough to give him something that'd make him happy. Okay, so our edge of the wedge is book wrecks. What now? I don't know. I'm not the billion-dollar company guy, so I went back to my friend. He said the first step to building a successful network is to make sure your product does not rely on the network. This is actually a pretty cool point. What he means is, forget which came first between the chicken or the egg. Your job is to ignore both and create value for the farmer. I'm not sure that totally makes sense, I've been drinking eggnog along with you, but I think it might. You need to provide value independent of the value your network will eventually provide. For Bookworm, that means we need to provide a ton of value to our first customers, whether they've got friends on the platform or not. So we need to provide customized, amazing, personal book recs. Obviously, we can't do that for everyone, so we've got to pick our first customer. Now we are back into my sweet spot. Who really wants book recs? Who struggles getting book recs? Who reads five-plus books a month so the feedback loop is fast? Who's the friend in their group of friends people come to when they need a book rec? Who has groups of super readers who will talk about these wrecks? How do we get that person interested early on? How do we ensure we can recommend books better than their current recommendation process? And most importantly, what are they hiring the books to do in the first place? Those are the questions that will lead to the billion-dollar business, and they're firmly in my safe space. That's the engine. Find that customer and make a recommendation engine so good they pay for it. And now here's how I'd do it because, again, eggnog, why not? I'd start an email service. Maybe my first customer would be people who really like sci-fi books. They've read all the classics and read everything new that comes out. Their blind spot is the hidden gems from over the years, potential classics that didn't get distributed well. The random sci-fi series published in the 70s. I'd find the niche channels these people hang out in and talk about books. Then I'd invite them to get a new, personalized, under the radar sci-fi book rec every week. I'd charge five bucks a month. The first thing I'd ask them to do is to give me their five favorite hidden gems, amazing sci-fi books no one else knows about. Then I'd ask for their five favorite sci-fi books, period. No judgment if they're mainstream. I know from all of the content online that people are going to be more than happy to share these book recs with me. I'd use these to start making a database suggesting where there's overlap. If you have three books in common with somebody else, I can pretty confidently recommend each of you the fourth and fifth. It's manual, but I'll be learning. That's the core. Community is layered on top of that. Then other genres, we grow vertically, eventually we grow horizontally, and eventually we all buy our own islands. The problem with all this is that it's scripted. I'm not sure it can work that way. I'm not sure I can follow the path I just laid out without actually being nuts about sci-fi books, without actually having a perspective on the space, without moving on to other sectors before I'd nail sci-fi because I didn't understand what nailing sci-fi would actually look like. But I do think it was a fun exercise, and weirdly the path to growing a billion dollar business or a million dollar business looked pretty similar at the start. The fundamentals and first decisions around testing are similar. I'll leave you with a quote the angel said to me on my way out the door after that pitch. As you'd imagine, things hadn't gone that well and we both knew it. He told me on the spot that he wasn't interested in investing, but then he said something else I'll always remember. He said, this isn't for me, but there's a good chance I don't know what I'm talking about. In the words of Bob Dylan, you don't need a weatherman to tell you which way the wind blows. I'm not really sure that applies directly to what we talked about during this podcast, but when else was I going to be able to squeeze it in? And the lesson there is strong. We're going to talk more about starting companies in 2021 next week, but this should be the year of trusting yourself to go after opportunities. You don't need anyone else's permission to test something out. Maybe even start with Goodreads. And that first point is the critical one. You need to believe something that other people don't. Lots of people are going to tell you what you're doing is a bad idea. That means you're on to something. Maybe in 2021, you'll build a billion dollar business and maybe the Knicks will make the playoffs. I'm good with both. Have a great holiday, everyone. Stay safe, stay happy, and let me know your thoughts on Bookworm. This is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. Got a few slots left for the cohort starting January 13th. Apply at gettacklebox.com. And if you'd rather learn how to build a startup at your own pace without me being a pain in the ass about it all, head to our website and click on the self-serve program. Have a great week.